Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist. Back with, uh, you know, more, more of the same, more of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as we plod along on our way to Geneva. And we begin today with, uh, I guess, an alarming observance on my part. I've had an alarming observance. And, I, and, and it's allergy season, and so you can probably hear that I'm about 33% towards a sneeze. But it's not quite emerging. Uh, So if I sound a little nasally and weird, you know it's because of the gathering sneeze storm that is accruing in my Sinai. And I just made up Sinai as a plural of sinus, even though I know it's sinuses. Okay? Just go with me. The alarming observation is this. You know, if you've been paying attention the last couple episodes, that Uh, My mood has been somewhat topsy-turvy because of events that have been going on in my life, and that remains uh, somewhat unresolved, although maybe more resolved than it has been. And the other night, we had dinner with a couple of friends. My wife made a friend several years ago when she was in school, in interior design school, getting, you know, degree. And she met uh, a, a woman, and we subsequently became friends with her and her husband, and we hadn't seen him in about six months. We went out to eat, and this they've both been fully vaxxed. We're halfway there, and we went out to eat. And they were relaying certain stories to me of people in their lives as we were relaying stories about our lives. And I thought back on this last year and change or so, and going back several years. And the alarming observation that I had was this. When I was a kid, I feel like there were jokes all the time about men in particular having midlife crises, midlife, midlife crises, where, and the joke was, oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to buy a, a sports car and they're going to, you know, start sleeping with their secretary or whatever it is. And it was all sort of like, ah, that's, that's fun and funny. Um, but what, what I've learned now, being in middle age, and those of you who are in middle age, like me, I'm sure can attest to this. And those of you who are not quite there, uh, it's coming. And those of you who are maybe past it, hopefully 
it gets better. But what I've learned is that the midlife crisis is in fact common. It affects men and women, and it is in fact a crisis, like real crises happening to people all around me. Mental crises, physical crises, spiritual crises, crises of memory, you know, remembrance, existential crises. I mean, they, t- they take all kinds of wonderful forms, but it seems to really be hitting people. I'm sure the pandemic has only exacerbated this problem for people who were maybe already teetering. And uh, as my life has been topsy-turvy, I cannot quite say that I am in crisis but the past three, four weeks have certainly felt crisis-like emotionally. And so I'm reminded of how unstable all of this shit is. That has been the resounding lesson of my life, I think, over the last uh, 20 years, is the instability of everything, that everything is built on just pillars in mud, you know, and something knocks into them the wrong way, and it feels like the whole thing could collapse. Now, the fact that it hasn't collapsed, and when I say it, I mean everything, suggests that maybe things are built uh, a little more sturdier than I'm giving them credit for, that the engineers did a finer job, that the building inspector came around and said, hey, you know what, it's, it's probably fine. And it turns out it was fine. But it, but there's a lot of shoddy craftsmanship going on in this world. A lot of uh, 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 slipshod work that does not feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to survive even minor tremors. Perhaps I've discussed this before, but the first time I became aware of this was on September 11th, 2001, and a couple of buildings got knocked down and some people died. And and I don't mean to minimize that in any way, shape, or form because it was what it was. But in the larger scope of things, in in the kind of global scope of things, it was an incident but that incident definitely felt like somebody had just knocked into one of the pillars and the whole thing trembled. Everything changed. The instability of our entire uh, uh, country became evident and manifest that we couldn't take that kind of psychic blow without it kind of fucking everything up. And the world since then has been fucked up. What a fucked up world the last 20 years. Now, was it fucked up before? No doubt. But I was less aware of it. I was far less aware of how fucked up things were. And since then, and everything that has happened since has only reinforced my idea that we are all just kind of wobbling on these pillars. And now I see it happening on a granular level with people that I care about, um, people that I know, people that I love, people who are uh, in some cases not surviving these crises. And it is humbling. Humbling, I guess, is the right word because it brings you, it, 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 it brings you down into 
the muck and mire of life itself. And what else is this book, Frankenstein, if not meant to bring us down into the muck and mire of life itself? What is the big buddy, if not a perpetual midlife crisis? I mean, he's born into midlife. I don't know what the life expectancy back then was, but let's say he's born into a midlife crisis. His entire life is a midlife crisis. And there are only so many ways to deal with that. And one of, and my preferred way is stealing my wife's clonopin. And he didn't have that option. So instead, he's going to burn the whole world down. When last we met with the big buddy, he was reformulating his plan for vengeance, blah, 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 blah. He'd saved a girl from the river. Uh, he'd gotten shot because of it. <laughs> You know, and he was like, why does everybody hate me? And, but, you know, he he doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on destroying everything. You know, he says, I was not made for the enjoyment of pleasure, but now my toils, my toils now drew near to a close. And in two months from this time, I reached the environs of Geneva. So he has come, in a sense, to Mount Olympus. He has come to the place where his God lives, or at least is from. Uh, Victor Frankenstein grew up there in Geneva, and now he is at the foothills of Mount Olympus. So let us continue reading. We are in volume two, chapter eight. It was evening when I arrived, and I retired to a hiding place among the fields that surround it, to meditate in what manner I should apply to you. I was oppressed by fatigue and hunger, and far too unhappy to enjoy the gentle breezes of evening, or the prospect of the sun setting behind the stupendous mountains of Jura. At this time, A slight sleep relieved me from the pain of reflection, which was disturbed by the approach of a beautiful child, who came running into the recess I had chosen with all the sportiveness of infancy. Is this this poor William, perhaps? Is he about to kill poor William? I mean, what a hell of a coincidence. If that was poor William, the first kid, the first person he sees there in Geneva happens to be Frankenstein's brother. Well, we'll find out. Suddenly, as I gazed on him, an idea seized me that this little creature was unprejudiced and had lived too short a time to have imbibed a horror of deformity. If, therefore, I could seize him and educate him as my companion and friend, I should not be so desolate in this peopled earth. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad idea, right? You see a kid you take it, right? It's not a bad idea at all. Hey, hey, here, here, here comes a kid. Hey, Shakespeare, here comes a kid. Let's take it. So, uh, you know, I'm going to take the kid. I'm going to mold him. I'm going to make him love me. And I'm going to squeeze him and hug me and hug him and make me and call him George. Isn't that from the Looney Tunes cartoon? Something like that. Uh, squeeze him and love him and call him George. Uh, so, you know, not a bad plan. You know, I'm going to be, I, you know, I'm lonely. Everybody hates me. But here's this little kid running around. Maybe, you know, he's not, he, he doesn't mind looking at my horrible face. He, he's too stupid to know yet that I'm supposed, that I'm scary. So I'll just take him and, and then we'll be fine. 
urged by this impulse, I seized on the boy as he passed and drew him towards me. As soon as he beheld my form, he placed his hands before his eyes and uttered a shrill scream. I drew his hand forcibly from his face and said, Child, what is the meaning of this? I do not intend to hurt you. Listen to me. He struggled violently. Let me go, he cried. Monster, ugly wretch, you wish to eat me and tear me to pieces. You are an ogre. Let me go or I will tell my papa. Boy, you will never see your father again. You must come with me. Hideous monster, let me go. My papa is a syndic. He is M. Frankenstein. He will punish you. You dare not keep me. So it is, little William. It is poor William. What a coinky-dinky right here. What a coinky-dinky we got on our hands. That poor William is the one that he should run into right as soon as he comes to Geneva. And then to say that accursed name Frankenstein. Uh, I mean, things we know are about to get bad. Frankenstein, you belong then to my enemy to him towards whom I have sworn eternal revenge. You shall be my first victim. The child still struggled and loaded me with epithets, which carried despair to my heart. I grasped his throat to silence him, and in a moment he lay dead at my feet. Oh. (laughs) So I guess he did kill him after all. (laughs) I mean, look. To me, this was one of the central mysteries of the book. Did the big buddy actually kill poor William? And uh, I didn't want to believe it. I know you didn't want to believe it because we knew. You, You know, we knew. Big buddy, big buddy, we love your good heart. You have a benevolent heart. We know that. And okay, you've been beat with a stick. You've been shot. You've been stoned. You've been screamed at. You've been cursed. You've lived in a hovel for two years. Unable, unable to sit up straight. Like, okay, but surely none of that means you should strangle poor William, even if he did call you an ogre. I mean, it's, it's just not nice. It's just not nice, Mary. Mary, why would you strangle poor William like this? It's not nice. What are you doing? Poor William never did anything to anybody. Such a sweet young boy. A young lad. His father's the syndic. I grasped his throat to silence him, and in a moment he lay dead at my feet. So the big buddy has committed a murder. A murder. And now he must face the consequences of that murder. I'm not talking about the townspeople of Geneva. I'm not talking about Victor Frankenstein. I'm talking about the consequences of his own heart. Because I know, and you know, that though it may be scabbed over by the malice of man inside, it remains tender and raw. Inside, it remains fleshy pulp that wants only to be juiced. Juice that heart. That's all we want. All right, let's take a little break. I'll get my own juice, some heart juice, um, but probably just some water. And we'll see what happens when we come back here on Obscure. We're 
We're back. Poor William lays dead at the big buddy's feet. I'm going to have some more water. I know I just said I was going to have some during the break, but I didn't. Now I'm going to have some. Poor William. Victim of the big buddy. And let us see how he responds. I gazed on my victim and my heart swelled with exultation and hellish triumph. Clapping my hands, I exclaimed, I too can create desolation. My enemy is not invulnerable. This death will carry despair to him, and a thousand other miseries shall torment and destroy him. As I fixed my eyes on the child, I saw something glittering on his breast. I took it. It was a portrait of a most lovely woman. In spite of my malignity, it softened and attracted me. That's Justine. That's the the little necklace Justine Moritz took of uh, Mama Frankenstein, Mama Barbarino. For a few moments, I gazed with delight on her dark eyes, fringed by deep lashes and her lovely lips. But presently, my rage returned. I remembered that I was forever deprived of the delights that such beautiful creatures could bestow, and that she whose resemblance I contemplated would, in regarding me, have changed that air of divine benignity. Benign? It's benign, but we do you know, I get benign, benignity? Benignity? Is that how you would say that? I'm not even going to crank up the research machine. I'm going to go with benignity. To one expressive of disgust and affright. Can you wonder that such thoughts transported me with rage? I only wonder that at that moment, instead of venting my sensations and exclamations and agony, I did not rush among mankind and perish in the attempt to destroy them. Oof. I mean, uh, I say I, I just oofed because, you know, it's been a bad week here in America, a bad month here in America. And it, this isn't the stuff for obscure, but uh, that that passage, uh, I only wonder that at that moment, instead of venting my sensations and exclamations and agony, I did not rush among mankind and perish in the attempt to destroy them. Does that not perfectly encapsulate what we imagine must be going through the heads of these people who commit these acts of gun violence? These wanton, random acts of gun violence, that idea that I'm just, I'm going to perish in my attempt to destroy them in my exclamations and agony. The thought that those kinds of acts are always performed by the insane is a way to dismiss them because it creates a barrier between us and them, obviously. It is saying they are not us. They are like the big buddy of another species altogether. They are no longer human. And therefore, we don't have to confront our own humanity when dealing with these people, quote unquote people who commit these crimes, because they have passed some threshold into some other state of being. When in fact, we know that they're people just like us. Sometimes, you know, I guess by definition, they have a mental illness because they are given to committing these crimes, but they are not others. 
you know, they are neighbors and friends and brothers who uh, people have known in their, you know, people have known them. They are, they are not born in some laboratory in Ingolstadt and they have not lived in hovels for years. They have been driven for, by whatever reasons, to these crimes. And that sense, I did not rush among mankind and perish in the attempt to destroy them, that feels very apt for what these people are doing. I'll continue. While I was overcome by these feelings, I left the spot where I had committed the murder. In seeking a more secluded hiding place, I entered a barn, which had appeared to me to be empty. A woman was sleeping on some straw. She was young, not indeed so beautiful as her whose portrait I held, but of an agreeable aspect in looming in the loveliness of youth and health. Here, I thought, is one of those whose joy-imparting smiles are bestowed on all but me. And then I bent over her and whispered, Awake, fairest, thy lover is near. He who would give his life but to obtain one look of affection from thine eyes, my beloved, awake. The sleeper stirred. A thrill of terror ran through me. Should she indeed awake and see me and curse me and denounce the murderer? Thus would she assuredly act if her darkened eyes opened and she beheld me. The thought was madness. It stirred the fiend within me. Not I, but she shall suffer. The murder I have committed because I am forever robbed of all that she could give me, she shall atone. The crime had its source in her. Be hers the punishment. Thanks to the lesson of Felix and the sanguinary laws of man, I had learned how to work mischief. I bent over her and placed the portrait securely in one of the folds of her dress. She moved again, and I fled. For some days I haunted the spot where these scenes had taken place, sometimes wishing to see you, sometimes resolved to quit the world and its miseries forever. At length, I wandered towards these mountains and have ranged through their immense recesses, consumed by a burning passion which you alone can gratify. We may not part until you have promised to comply with my requisition. I am alone and miserable. Man will not associate with me, but one as deformed and horrible as myself would not deny herself to me. My companion must be of the same species and have the same defects. This being you must create. Predicted it! I predicted it. That was going to be what he wanted from Victor Frankenstein to make a little she-buddy, right? To make a she-buddy to be with the big buddy and then they could be deformed and angry together, but they would have their own defects and love each other, right? That's, what, that's where all this has been going for a hundred and whatever pages. This is the promise that the big buddy must extract from Victor Frankenstein to make one such as himself because that pulpy heart of his only wants love only wants some other eyes to gaze on him without malice. 
Isn't that what we all want? Just gaze on me without malice. Just look at me without seeing a goddamn monster, even though I know myself to be one. Isn't that all of us? Don't we all feel that same horror upon <laughs> upon looking at ourselves? At times, we look at ourselves and wonder how anyone can see us without terror and affright. Our, our big buddies are hidden beneath our skin. His is right there in the open for everybody to see. And the humanity is buried underneath. It's right there. But what if Victor Frankenstein makes uh, a she-buddy and then, you know, it turns out they just, they, you know, they're incompatible. You know, they don't, they don't like the same TV shows or the same foods. And, you know, he's got all these annoying habits that she's always bothering him about. And she's got annoying habits that he's always getting at her about, you know. She leaves the plates in the in the sink so that they crust over and then, you know, makes it that much harder to wash later on. And then, you know, and then, you know, at a certain point they're like, God, you know, we only have each other, but I really feel like we can't stay together because we're just driving each other crazy. So we're going to need more buddies to get along with. So Victor, if you could make just a couple more buddies for us to get, you know, so that She's got somebody, I've got somebody, and then, you know, we'll go out, we'll do, we'll do double dates, we'll have, it'll be nice, we'll go to that little French place up in the Alps, when they're closed, of course, you know, so nobody gets too upset, but it'll be nice. And then they're going to be like, and we want little buddy kids, because, you know, that's, what else are we doing here, if not, we're not, if we're not here to procreate, so could you make us some buddy kids, because we've been trying. And nothing's happening. And I don't know if, I don't know if I'm the problem. I don't know if she's the problem. It's probably her, you know, because I'm not, I'm not going to blame myself. But where does it end? You know, it's a slippery slope up there in the Alps. Lots of slippery slopes. You can come tumbling down if you're not careful. So where does it end? But we understand, don't we? His desire for companionship. If only... If only he could find love, he would not have any need for hatred. He could let humanity be. Look, it's a, it's a nice thought. I don't even begrudge him killing poor William. I'm fine with it. I really am. I never liked poor William to begin with. Snot-nosed kid running around. You know, minor character in the book. I didn't give a shit about it. I didn't care, okay, I didn't care about Justine Moritz. Even though she was, you know, her mother tossed her out on her ear and then she came back and, she, you know, the, the, she was mean to the mother. The mother, you know, hey, Justine Moritz's story didn't move me to tears. I don't care that she was convicted for the crime of murdering poor William. My interest lies at this point in Big Buddy and his happiness. That's what I want. I want a little Bride of Frankenstein. I want a little She Buddy. I want them to get along. I want them to have a nice little cottage up there in exile where nobody will ever find them. And he can chop wood for her. And in the springtime, they can run on an, uh, through an alpine glen, 
singing, the hills are alive with the sound of music. I don't feel like that is too much to ask for. And we, he's correct, you know, in his assessment of his God, Victor Frankenstein, he's correct that were it not for Frankenstein's hubris and anti-natural attitude, he would not be there to be miserable. He would not have to take on the sufferings of the world if he were just left to decompose in the ground as the, uh, the limbs and organs and eyeballs and what have you of all the different people from whom he was assembled. Don't we, want, don't we want Big Buddy to be happy, you guys? Isn't that all we want? To just know there's a Yeti up there in the Swiss Alps with his Yeti bride singing the sound of music, eight feet tall and rising. Don't we want that? Don't we want that image to be the last image we have of the Big Buddy? Of course we do. And yet we know it is not meant to be because we know very soon they will be chasing each other across the frozen tundra of the north. How we get there, we don't yet know. But we've certainly taken some steps in the right direction and Big Buddy's plea has finally been revealed. Make me a she-buddy. Make me a she-buddy, my lord. And let's leave it there, you know? He's created a kind of hellish Eden from which to implore his god for companionship. It is bizarro world Eden, where it is not a garden, it is a desolate, snowy wasteland. There is no tree of knowledge, only this stub of a man and his notebooks. There is no god, only the Wizard of Oz. So we'll contemplate that as we contemplate crises of various sorts. We'll come back next time and continue our journey and hopefully get enraptured by the love that is going to emerge from the laboratory of Victor Frankenstein. We'll be back next week with another Crisis on Middle Earth episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedrin. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.